Welcome to Libraries Out Loud, a podcast produced by the University of Buffalo Libraries. I'm your host, Omar Brown, Education Technology Support Associate and Silverman Library on UB's North Campus. In each episode of Libraries Out Loud, we'll explore connections between the UB libraries and the research, learning, teaching, and creative activities of our faculty, students, and staff. In this month's episode, the team from UB's Digital Scholarship Studio and Network will be joining us for an informative talk about digital scholarship, how the studio and network supports research of those in the UB community, and notable projects by UB faculty. With me today are co-directors, Stacy Snyder and Kristan Miller, and digital scholarship librarian, Natalia Estrada. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I'd like to start by talking a bit about digital scholarship. First, could you tell us what digital scholarship is and how it benefits UB's faculty and students? Well, that's actually a really great question. And it's actually a really hard one to answer. You ask about 50 practitioners and they'll give you a bunch of different responses, none of them the same. But I think the definition that I like to work with, it's the use of digital methods and tools to either ask a new research question, you know, either providing new insight into data. So say you're doing a text analysis on hundreds of books and you're looking at that data differently using these tools. You're supporting critical engagement in the classroom. You're having your students do say like a fun mapping exercise, locating place and say taste of food, or you're publishing scholarship in new interactive ways. Say like you're putting a podcast instead of going through traditional uh, publishing. And so the way that this benefits the UB community is one, as I mentioned, it's a new way of a new avenue of putting your scholarship out there. You're going outside of the traditional publishing model where you have to submit a journal article, you have to get a refereed and it takes a while. Instead, you, you can put a website or an interactive map or a podcast out and it connects to different audience in that way. The other way, and I think it's a really great benefit, is you can connect with a wider community of researchers. So instead of being this very siloed, you know, group of researchers around you, you can connect with, say, the community, like the people who live in a community that you're researching, and there are researchers as well providing their lived experiences through, say, like audio interviews or, you know, providing understanding of space and, you know, pinpointing it on a map. And so we've had a lot of projects that do that and it becomes much richer in that. Just one other thing. There are um, some ways in which digital projects enable scholars to uh, deal with a much broader variety of resources than they would be able to in a publication. So there are such strict limits about what can go into a book, whereas a digital site is extremely capacious. And you get more students maybe, or people who are just new to the topic, really invested in that instead of saying like, you know, a lot of times when we look at traditional publishing, it's written in a way that only connects to people who are experts in those areas. So you don't understand the jargon, but you put up a website, you put up this interactive tool, it becomes much more accessible. And that's definitely what we need now and being able to reach a lot more people, have a lot more hands involved, it sounds so inclusive. I think that's wonderful. Could you tell us about the Digital Scholarship Studio and Network, or DSSN, and how it got started? 
Well, I'll talk, uh, speak to that because I was one of the initiators. So this was a kind of brainchild of a UB librarian, Jessica Clemens, no longer at UB, and myself, because we were frustrated by, I'll use that word that Natalia used, silo structures and mentalities at UB that kept people in one department or one school or unit from working closely with people in other areas who had very similar interests, but just didn't know about those intersections or didn't think about ways to reach out. So we wanted to create really a network that would lead faculty to overcome those barriers and interact with each other in ways that would generate new scholarship, new research projects, and also inspire people to do new things with projects that they already had underway. So we came up with a proposal. It was funded by the UB President's Circle in the fall of 2018. And then we started up in 2019. So we moved uh, very quickly. We're a new unit. We wanted from the start to be a university city-wide, not to be under the umbrella or auspices of a single unit at the university. So we had from the beginning uh, support of the College of Arts and Sciences, the UB Libraries, and also the Graduate School of Education with funding support from the Vice President for Research and Economic Development. So really a university structure from the B from the beginning. So we were founded to provide a network of knowledge, support, encouragement for people engaged in digital scholarship, as Natalia used to find it, across the university. And this has meant that we are not primarily focused on pedagogy, but it's, of course, impossible to talk about research to some extent without engaging questions of uh, curriculum and pedagogy, especially at the level of graduate student training. So as we age, as we expand, uh, we imagine that we'll move more into uh, these areas as well. That's exciting. And in such a short amount of time too, you know? It went very fast. <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, what are some of the digital tools and services offered in the studio space? We have several rooms that are available, including classroom, a small classroom that can be used for in-person as well as video conferencing. We have a small conference space and we have a space that we're calling a more of a workroom, uh, modular furniture. And the idea is that, you know, that we're, we're hoping will happen is that faculty who are working on digital scholarship projects and their students could use the space to work collaboratively. If they're, you know, working on a particular project, they could say, use our workroom and, and have project on the monitor that we, on the computer that we have in there and also work on laptops that we have available to work on, to work on the projects. And and we do have some laptops available for people to use while they're in the, the studio. And those laptops have some specialized software such as Oxygen for TEI editing and some other specialty programs that people might want to use for digital studio or for digital scholarship work. And if they wanted to start working on you know, working in our space, they could just contact Chris or myself and we would, would work on that. We haven't had a lot of that happening yet because as Chris mentioned, we officially opened in September, 2019. So we didn't have a lot of time 
pre-pandemic to actually, you know, get things really rolling. And now that we're back on campus a bit more, we're hoping that, you know, soon we'll be able to start having the spaces used more frequently. And I think one important question too is where is the studio? <laughs> it is on the third floor of Lockwood Library. We have, there are three rooms, so it's not a, a large contiguous space. It's essentially three offices that have been graciously given to us by the, the libraries. And we also have some space in an, an open area in between the rooms where we can have larger gatherings when that sort of thing is, is something that we can do again. I was just down there too last week and it is very nice. I do like the way that the furniture is set up in that open space between the offices and mm -hmm. the group study room in the corner and mm -hmm. you know with the the furniture the couch that's in there and then that little divider wall with mm -hmm. I really just like the geometric pattern on that Thanks. so yeah it's aesthetically pleasing and then mm -hmm. of course you have all of the uh, other rooms too that have mm -hmm. all those things that they offer Right. Who can use the studio? How would someone begin using the space? For example, is there like a registration involved? Well, like I said, it's uh, any faculty who are working on digital scholarship projects are welcome to use it. They would just need to contact Chris or me and we can you know, talk about their project and their needs and see if, you know, the space that we have would be useful for them. And is it just faculty? Are there students that can request to use the space or do they need to be under the, I wouldn't say supervision? Of yeah, the students who are directly working with faculty on their projects, whether those are undergraduate or graduate students, but we would need to definitely have that faculty oversight of them. Well, good to and know. it could be students working in a, uh, in a curricular project, right, for a class or students working for a research project. Oh, good. And um, are there consultations available for those who want to start a research project? Well, we talk with everyone who wants to talk with us. So if people, each year we contact each new faculty member coming into the university to let them know about the DSSN and to ask if they have projects they would like to discuss with us, either projects that are already ongoing or new projects they'd like to initiate. And we make repeated other kinds of outreach to faculty to encourage those with ideas for new projects to come to us. So we don't have official consultations really, but we're talking to people all the time. And what we, of course, attempt to do is to give them ideas about where they can go for the kinds of support they're looking for. At the moment, the DSSN is not sufficiently funded that it itself can offer a great deal of, let's say, programming or support staff or even a high level of technological uh, support for new projects. But we can point people to appropriate IT offices in their own schools or to ways that they might make contact with others who are using the same platforms or software tools or who've already developed a lab that might be of use to them, for example, an ArcGIS lab, so that everyone isn't reinventing the same wheel all the time, right? Again, to get out of these silos, get people to be collaborative and thinking about the tools and resources um, that we have here at UB. We also sponsor every year five or six competitive enabling grants to help people 
with some funding to hire, let's say, a programmer or a research assistant or to buy software licenses or whatever else they might need for a particular stage or particular project in their proposal. Don't have to be new projects, but they could be. I think that the issue in many digital scholarship projects is that it's not just new projects that need support. So you don't just set up a project and then walk away from it like you do with a book. Instead, they need ongoing maintenance and because programs become obsolete, programs develop glitches, and there needs to be some kind of oversight and direction, making sure that things continue to function appropriately. So there too, we try to guide people to resources. And we we ourselves have a research assistant who can help with some of this work for faculty projects. And again, I'm going to say that we're hoping eventually to have better funding for both technological and staff support in helping people with ongoing and with new projects. Really all does come down to the funding, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, a lot of it is funding and a lot of it is networking, really. You know, so that idea that some units have already developed programs or labs that other units don't. And, you know, what's what's shareable? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess outside of, the, of research projects, what are some other offerings from DSSN? Are there things like workshops, events? So when you're at a university, a lot of times the big issue is that you might be in one department, say like you're in the history department, but you might not hear about what's going on in say like comp sci and you're a little bit distance. So one nice thing is that we hold a lot of talks. We invite a lot of people who we think are doing very interesting projects. We say, hey, come give a talk through our through our studio. And we've had some really great talks come through. We had one about bystander effects in social media. We also hold a symposium every, I believe every year or so. In 2020, it was a symposium on algorithm bias, which has been a very big topic in digital scholarship spaces. And so the other nice thing is that say, you know, we're all busy. We might miss a really great talk that we're really invested in. We record them and we'll put them on the website so you can catch up with them later. We also host workshops because not everybody is going to be, you know, a pro in a lot of these skills. So we offer workshops on digital publishing, you know, text analysis, data mining, ArcGIS, and spatial analysis. Those are some of our great offerings that we have. How would one learn more about the workshops, events, and the symposiums? How would they get more information about that or on how to uh, attend them? So we post that information on our website. We also have a Twitter account as well as a, a listserv that you are welcome to sign up for. And we put all of our new information through those venues. Oh, great. Oh, wait. For each presentation, we also um, reach out to several departments, again, across the university in order to ask if people will, as it were, co-sponsor. And what we mean by co-sponsoring is, will they help us advertise? So, for example, if someone is giving a talk on a particular topic that we think would be of great interest to people in five different departments, then we reach out to communication, sociology, history, whatever it might be the School of Social Work to ask them if they would help us advertise that presentation or workshop. And that's also been very successful, we think, in getting uh, larger numbers of people to, to come to a presentation. Definitely noticing like, you know, the collaborative element of all of this and how there's so many people working together to not just get the word out about a lot of projects and things going on, but then also sharing the knowledge about how to use all of the technologies. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. 
Well, I think that's an uh, like an underrated aspect of doing academic work. Everybody assumes it's just like that lone genius in the lab by themselves, just like getting all that information through and just no help whatsoever. No, it's a teamwork kind of a thing. And that's something that we want, especially our, our students to understand that you do want to have a collaborative effort around you to be able to do the best kind of research that you can. Agreed. And now on to uh, individual spotlight, I guess you can say. I see there's several innovative digital projects done by faculty, specifically a digital humanities project, the Marianne Moore Digital Archive, founded and run by you, Chris. Can you tell us about the project? I would love to. This is an electronic archive that's publishing in digitized, transcribed, and annotated form all 122 of the poet Marianne Moore's working notebooks. So Marianne Moore was a poet who wrote at the beginning of the 20th century, and she kept notebooks on everything in her life. All the reading that she was doing, conversations she was having with people, or that she overheard at parties, or while riding on a train, or when she was at the circus. She just wrote things down in notebooks. Lectures she went to, museum exhibits, sermons she attended. She just kept notes on her life. So she has 122 working notebooks. None had ever been published before. No one had ever been given permission to publish these before. And again, this is the kind of archive that you couldn't possibly put into a published book. It's way too much material. So, um, so we're putting all this up in facing page form on the Mary Moore uh, Digital Archive. We're also publishing her daily calendars where she kept notes about you know, who she had lunch with or what she was working on that day or how much money they gave her when she won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> it's a little note in red that just says $500. <laughs> And we have uh, an educational section with syllabi, lesson plans, individual readings of poems by the poet that a student or a faculty member could look up for assistance in proceeding. We have a section uh, called historical contexts, where we encourage people to, to write stories about fun things in Moore's life. So for example, there's a little video up of a commercial that Marianne Moore made with Mickey Spillane for Braniff Airlines in, I think it's the 1950s. It's kind of hilarious. Or there's an, another little story explaining how it is that Marianne Moore was invited to write the jacket notes for Muhammad Ali's album, I Am the Greatest. Uh, you know, so things like this that you wouldn't anticipate, but just little stories that are fun that get people engaged in a different way with this, you know, otherwise very mm, experimentalist and, and sometimes a difficult poet. So this the archive went online in uh, late in 2015, so also relatively new. We now have four notebooks up, and we are encountering a major glitch. So uh, we have about five other notebooks that are really just on the verge of going online. But until we figure out how to make two of our programs work more smoothly together with each other, we really can't proceed. So, you know, we are in that classic moment of digital archives where there is a technical programming issue that has to be solved and that, that we ourselves don't have the expertise alone to solve. So we're having to bring some people in to help us and so on. At any rate, I love the project. Um, I find it endlessly fascinating. And we've gotten wonderful feedback from students, scholars, teachers who are using the site, also enjoying it, finding it useful. I think that's very interesting 
interesting about the records that she kept on all these small details of life. And But if you think about it, and from a historical standpoint, you can kind of get a sense of what things were like at the time. I think that's- Oh my gosh, yeah. It's an incredible record of a woman from 1907 through the 1970s just commenting on the things in her world. And what I should also have said is that many of the things that she records in these notebooks, pieces of conversation, things that she's read, actually end up in her poems. So her poems are in some way a kind of mosaic of things drawn from these notebooks. And it's a lovely, ironic commentary on the high art emphasis of people like, let's say, T.S. Eliot. So she's not quoting from Milton. She's quoting from somebody she overheard at the circus. <laughs> or, you know, so it's a very democratizing way of bringing in voices in the world that she's living among uh, in her in her poetry. I think that's very cool. Thank you so much, Chris. Now, are there other notable faculty projects supported by DSSN? Okay, well, I'm going to be equally enthusiastic about everyone else's project. That We have wonderful projects, and they're listed on the DSSN website under the tab called Project. There's something called Faculty Project. So I encourage everyone to go and look at the kinds of things there. So we have projects listed that are directed by faculty from humanities, social science, arts, computer science engineering, some engage queer studies, some engage uh, African-American or Africana studies, indigenous studies. So three of the digital projects listed on our website have been, are being directed by a distinguished indigenous studies scholar, Mishana Goman, who's joining the UB faculty. There's another uh, project uh, coming from the dance department that tracks choreographic lineage. Another engages the dynamics of urban decline um, through intensive work with the um, residents of a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, and this project's director, Chris Melly, uh, just received an NEH fellowship for digital publication to pursue uh, that project. Another focuses on deep fake algorithms. This is directed by a recently hired Empire Innovation Professor in Computer Science and Engineering. So again, just to give you a sense of the breadth of the uh, project, some are directed by very junior faculty, some by very senior faculty. Really, it's the, it's the whole range. <clears throat> We're also starting to list on our website books published by faculty on digital scholarship or digital humanities. And that's a, a section that so far only has a few publications listed, but we know that that list will grow as people um, begin to realize they should share that information with us or as we hear about more books. So we want both the projects um, and projects about projects to be featured on our website. I'll also throw in that um, one of the other nice things, so there's always a question that the great you know, Marian Posner poses is how do they do that, which is how do they make that project? And so one other thing, when you look through the list of projects that our faculty have done, is they also list the tools that they use for their projects. So a lot of our, you know, a lot of the projects mentioned that they use WordPress or that they use Python or that they use GIS, or there's another project that I like to point out, Dig the History Podcast, where they talk about the tools like Audacity, you know, to be able to create the podcast that they use and how to advertise it. So that's something also that we like to advertise. Oh, great. That's also important, especially if somebody, you know, wants to use that tool for their own, you know, initiative. Oh, I love that. That's great. And the DSSN has a strong connection to university libraries and Stacy and Natalia are both librarians. Stacy, can you discuss some of the more 
important, most important aspects of your role as co-director and how you help support the relationship between DSSN and the libraries. Yeah, Chris obviously brings a strong digital humanities background. And I like to think of myself as picking up the rest of digital scholarship. And by that, I mean, you know, making sure that that outreach to other departments happens. And a lot of that happens just through working with our colleagues in the libraries, making sure that everyone in the libraries and specifically our subject liaisons know about the programming that we're offering. And so that they can share that with the the faculty that they work with, and also to uh, hear from them about projects that might be happening in the departments that they are liaisons to. So, you know, kind of wanting to have that uh, going both ways. And even if the our colleagues don't have specific projects uh, that they know about, they can let us know about you know, trends that they're hearing about or things like that. So things that we can, you know, look into if, you know, see if that's something that we need to know more about. And Natalia, I see you presented an event recently titled, But It's a Job, Staff Morale in the Academic Library Hierarchy. What insights from this event can you discuss about the work of Katrina Davis-Kendrick, Library Staff Morale, and how it ties into digital scholarship? I'm so glad you asked. I could talk for hours about this. Katrina Davis-Kendrick, researcher, practitioner, dean of, I think, Winthrop Libraries extraordinaire, did a series of interviews looking at the phenomena of low morale or, you know, how you feel about your your work and your place in the work, the, the low effect on academic librarians at the time. And she noticed, you know, around this time that there was a lot of this discussion about like, why were librarians leaving workplaces? You know, what was this phenomenon with burnout and all this? And she noticed that, you know, it was much worse both emotionally and mentally, but also a number of the librarians voted, uh, posted physical ailments that they were going through with low morale, you know, tying in with like anxiety and stress and to where like they were trying to leave the profession altogether. And so she put, she published this really great piece about the low morale in academic libraries. And so the research that myself and my collaborators did is kind of like a complement to that, where we look at library staff. And these are staff that aren't given the title of librarian, but they work in libraries. They're the people who work at your circulation desk. They're the people who a lot of times you have a question and you email, they might be the ones responding. They're the public facing a lot of times or behind the scenes. They make sure that the library runs. They've been going through a lot of you know different morale issue as well. And especially how their position in library hierarchies affect that. So it doesn't sound like it ties into digital scholarship, but hear me out. Besides the fact that, you know, we did a, all, a lot of our interviews with library staff through digital means, you know, we did video chats, we did analysis through QDA tools and stuff like that. But the way that I think about this kind of project and other projects related to it are, as I like to put, the front end and the back end. So the front end is where people like Katrina Davis-Kendrick, you know, she published her results and her continuing research through Twitter, through her Renewer, Renewers LIS website, she makes all of her research publicly available. And this is really useful in the sense that a lot of the people that are affected by these same phenomena won't, you know, they don't have to go through the extra trouble of trying to find it through a journal. It's more readily accessible for them to be able to see that it's not just them and that there are ways 
to be able to, you know, escape these kind of issues. And a lot of the different people who are working in workplace issues in libraries, like Katrina Davis Kendrick, Babazi Yatars, uh, Vocational All, and the people behind library, Protect Library Workers, are putting these kinds of issues and their responses in a way that is much more accessible through digital publishing, like in the library with the lead pipe, through social media. So it's much more accessible for our people who need to hear these kinds of things. Now, if we look at the back end, as I mentioned, and as also Chris mentioned, these kinds of projects need to be maintained. The library needs to be maintained. That takes people, that takes a lot of work. And so there's been a lot of people who, a lot of researchers, I'm thinking of Erica Kavanaugh, Gwen Dabrowski, Rubika Rizam, Andromeda Yelton, who have written about, you know, when it comes to digital projects and digital scholarship, that's manpower that tends to be ignored. Actually, Andromeda Yelton wrote this really fabulous piece about in response to an article that, you know, dismissed the idea that putting up a digital project is just essentially storing it on a on a server. Where she pointed out, no, that takes people to maintain, that takes people to, you know, with software engineering skills to be able to keep that up to date. And that's time, that's labor, that's money, and that's stuff that a lot of times doesn't get acknowledged. So, you know, a lot of times people kind of think that, you know, this project just magically appears, but these are, you know, things that need to be considered. Otherwise, you know, the people who do that extra labor of maintaining the project, making sure everything, you know, is functioning, if there's no proper compensation or proper acknowledgement, they can leave. So that's something that, you know, I think my, the kind of work that I've done and others have done, you know, tie in with digital scholarship. Yes. And I think the accessibility aspect is even more so important because not everybody has the privilege of having university credentials or something like that to be able to access, you know, the full articles. And I have seen Katrina Davis Kendrick's, you know, updates about the ongoing processes with the, you know, the survey and the article in LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that. So yeah, it's really important to be able to have all of that work out there, you know, to people who could really use that. And then of course, it's important to note how much work goes into being able to put the work out there and then maintain, you know, it's, it's public face. So. Yeah, I, I like to say that like, you know, a lot of these projects, it's, it's people, not place. Um, and, you know, it's not like the fancy tools. The, the tools mean nothing if there's not people who can help you understand how to use it and how to run it, things like that. So that's something that we always have to consider. Absolutely. And are there any other things uh, you all would like our listeners to know about digital scholarship or perhaps where they can go to learn about funding a research project or request a consultation? Well, they should definitely come to us. So uh, the, uh, the website provides contact information, but the website also, for example, under our tools and resources tab, has a digital humanities research guide. How do you get started? And uh, other kinds of guides that people can use if they'd like to go out and read some things as opposed to, to talk with us. We strongly encourage people to visit our presentations and workshops because that's a great way just to get to know to start to get to know the community and to think about, oh, gee, I'd like to talk to that person. Or, you know, even if it's not a presenter, let's say someone asks an interesting question or puts an interesting comment in ch um, chat uh, and you think, yeah, that's somebody that I might want to follow up with. So yes, we encourage people to come to us, to come to our website. And we hope 
we hope many will. And our website address is buffalo.edu slash DSSN. So you can get to all of that information there. I'll also throw in, for those who might be a little hesitant to explore digital scholarship or digital humanities, because, you know, they see a project and they're like, that's really cool, but I don't have the skills. You don't have to have the skills already. You don't have to be a pro using a computer or having computational skills to do digital scholarship. A lot of people who are practitioners didn't have these skills beforehand. The main thing I like to point out is it's more important to be curious and to be interested in a project, to try the project, try a new skill, fail, and learn from it. One of the nice things if you can reach out to, you know, either me or Stacy or Chris is that we will fill your brain with different ideas and different like venues to look at. So one thing you say, if you're curious about how to do text analysis, is I like to point to different projects that are out there and learn from people. So one really great resource I like to point to is the Data Sitters Club. It is a group of researchers looking at the text of the Babysitters Club, the very famous children's literature series about the group of preteen girls doing their babysitting and teaching others how to do text analysis and the many issues that they ran into the way. Like, the issue of OCR and multilingual, you know, text analysis. Look through the internet or come talk to us. I will throw more wonderful projects at you to learn from. So yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. And Natalia makes a very important point, and I want to underline it in a slightly different way. A lot of people going into digital humanities, in fact, have no tech skills at all. So, um, for example, when I began the Merriam Moore Digital Archive, it wasn't because I had a technical understanding of digital humanities. I had a vision, and I knew what I wanted to happen. And then I found people to work with who would help me with the technical side of things. So what Natalia has just said is very important. You don't have to feel like you're already an expert to get started. You just have to have a vision of where you want to go. And then, you know, we'll, we'll help you from there. All right. Well, I think that these are fantastic responses. And I learned so much about DSSN. And I thank you all for coming uh, for this insight, insightful conversation today. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for having us. us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Libraries Out Loud. And stay tuned for our next look at the UB Libraries on campus.